I started making excuses to myself. You know, I can pull out this race now because, you know, I've done I've done a great job for someone with you know 22% lung function. I, I can hold my head up. But then it hit me. One thing I said to my family when I was first diagnosed is I said to them, I don't want to be treated like an invalid. I don't want to be treated any differently to anyone else. So here I am, two thirds of the way through an Ironman event, making excuses for myself. And I'm treating myself like an invalid. And I started to think, this is not who I am. Welcome to this week's episode of the Human Enhancement Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And I'm really excited to talk with Russell Winwood. So Russell is an early ketone ester user and was actually part of our early testing batch that went out a few months ago. And I think you have a very unique story because Russell actually suffers from COPD, which is a very serious disease affecting his lung capacity. So I think Russ, it was coordinating with my producer Zill and, and, and telling Zill to, to have a, a straw on hand so he can mimic some of the experiences of what it's like to breathe with COPD. But I really see Russ as not just you know a patient, or someone suffering from disease, but really turning that on its head and becoming an inspiring athlete. So I think, you know, we'll go through that trajectory and that journey of how he battled through and accomplished and, and finished a Boston Marathon in what was probably one of the harshest weather conditions ever in that race. But along the way, I think you've also become an expert, or at least, you know, a practicing expert in ketogenic diets and ketosis for the management of COPD. So excited to bring Russ on the program today. It's a pleasure to be here, Jess. So let's start from the top, COPD. So for the folks that, you know, our listeners that might not be familiar with what COPD is, can you explain that and how that developed and the story of how this became an impact in your life? Yeah, well, COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It's a disease of the lungs and it's defined by a fixed airway obstruction. So that's an obstruction that can, cannot be reversed. The disease is progressive. There is no cure. And tragically, it kills about 3.2 million people globally every year. Wow. It's a disease that, uh, unfortunately, not a lot of people know about. And it's predicted to be the third leading cause of death worldwide by 2030. I was diagnosed with COPD back in 2011. I've been an asthmatic all my life. And... Uh, my asthma hadn't been managed correctly over the years, my fault, and it developed into COPD. Now, of course, you know, smoking is part of COPD. 80% of patients with the disease are ex-smokers, and I'm certainly one of those. But I guess when I was diagnosed and I was faced with the prognosis of, of needing a, a double lung transplant within five years, and not a long lifespan ahead of me, I sat back and thought I need to do something different. And that's been my journey. As far as what it's like to be a COPD patient, I believe you've got a straw there. Yeah. And something that I, I get people to, to, yeah. to try because it demonstrates our disease. So if you pinch your nose, put the straw in your mouth and breathe in and out, so you're only breathing in and out through the straw, you notice it's difficult to breathe, so it's harder to get air in and air out. So you imagine that 24 hours a day, yeah. that's how you're breathing. Yeah. So then 
imagine trying to do a marathon right or to do an Ironman event when you breathe like that it's difficult it's unimaginable so typically my understanding is that they typically rate your obstruction by a percentage of typical normal lung capacity in my scenario i was diagnosed with 22 percent lung function and pretty much for for about five years it stayed in that range from 22 to 30 percent but over the last couple of years, I've changed my dietary strategy and I've now been able to get some improvement out of that. Um, my highest um, reading so far is uh, 41% lung function, which, which is a significant improvement. Yeah, It's still very hard to breathe when you're breathing at so low levels of lung function. But for a patient, when you're coming from 22% to 40%, it makes a big difference. Yeah. So I'm actually curious to learn about the history here. So it sounded like sort of, you had a history of smoking and had a history of asthma. And was there a wake up call where it was like, oh, or, or was this like a gradualization? Or it was like, uh, you went to the doctor and it's like the doctor was saying, hey, you're literally breathing 20% of normal capacity. You got to change your life. Can you describe the, you know, the, the evolution here? Yeah, look, my story is one that I wouldn't recommend people follow my example because, you know, uh, from a health point of view, I, I didn't look after myself at all. I was an asthmatic kid. I started smoking in my late teens. Um, I smoked for probably about 25 years. Hmm. At the age of 36, I had a stroke oh. because my life was so out of control as far as you know, looking after myself. My stroke was actually so severe that the paramedics who attended me turned up in hospital three days later because they didn't believe I lived. And for me, that was the start of the wake-up call. Um, that I need to change my life and I started doing that. I got into exercise. My son was a, an avid cyclist back then and talked me into taking up cycling. And then I started eating what I thought was a healthy diet, exercise, taking my medications regularly and getting my life back on track. I still had asthma, um, which was, was never going to go away, so that still affected my exercise ability. But I really enjoyed triathlons and, and, and endurance events in general. Um, in 2010, uh, I, I'd gone down to watch some friends do an Ironman event. And after watching it, I was inspired to actually uh, have a crack at it myself. Um, you know, Ironman, I guess, for a lot of people is the pinnacle of uh, endurance sports. Um, so I'd entered... Um, the uh, Port Macquarie, which is our home at Ironman, um, for 2011. Uh, but what I found is once I started stepping up the training for Ironman, so it's, uh, you know, longer uh, endurance, swims, rides, runs, more intense, that sort of thing, I was getting sick. Uh, so every time I'd step up the, the intensity, I would get uh, chest infections, I'd become ill, I'd be on antibiotics, I'd get myself better again, and then start training again, and then it repeat itself. So it was like a vicious cycle. Like you were um, just coughing up phlegm, like your just lungs were... Coughing up phlegm, very breathless, lack of energy. Okay. And, and being tired all the time. So... You weren't uh, diagnosed with COPD yet. You were just, you know, this is yeah. the post-stroke wake-up call. You're getting inspired by your friends. You knew you had a history of asthma, but you didn't realize that you had the underpinning symptoms of COPD. Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I got into 2011, and it was probably about three or four months before the Ironman race that I'd entered, and I realised there was no way I was going to do it. I was still sick. I couldn't train, so I pulled out of the event, 
which was a tough pill to swallow because you don't get a refund on your entry fee. <laughs> and <laughs> and you, don't, you don't get a refund on all the trainings. I know that the train for a full Ironman, I mean, that's months of dedication yeah. and sweat. Yeah, so I pulled out of the event and just decided I need to focus on getting my health back in order because by that stage, I'd become really breathless. I was sick all the time. I had no energy whatsoever. I got to the stage where my day would consist of going to work for two hours, coming home and sleeping the rest of the day. Um, One of the costs with COPD is the exhaustion you get from the breathing because breathing is so much harder. You use so much more energy. I thought to myself by stopping training that I would get back to where I was before, but I didn't. Um, I was still continually sick. So at that stage, I went off to my doctor and said, look, we need to investigate this further. I don't think this is asthma. This is more than asthma. Um, Something's not right. So he sent me off to a respiratory physician who sent me away to get spirometry testing, which is the gold standard in diagnosing respiratory disease. And when the results come back, he said to me, your lung function is 22%. You have a disease called COPD. There is no cure for it. It's progressive. I'd never heard of the disease. I didn't know what COPD was. So that's how my story evolved as far as the diagnosis of COPD. Looking back now, I probably had the disease for maybe three or four years before I was diagnosed because the severity of my diagnosis, it wouldn't have just happened overnight. It would be a thing that's built up. And I guess a lot of patients fall into the same trap. They become more breathless and they put it down to either getting older or that they've got asthma and it's getting worse. But quite often it can be um, something a little bit more sinister. Right. So I, I think your story is unique because you didn't just take the diagnosis and sort of rolled over. You've really become an advocate for the community, raising funds for research. And also starting to be an N equals one guinea pig on different interventions like a ketogenic diet and recently our human ketone ester and following the work of Professor Kieran Clark over at Oxford. So can you tell us about the journey from getting the prognosis that your lungs are 22% of capacity? You're probably not going to have a great quality of life breathing 22% and breathing through a straw all day for the rest of your life. I mean, I guess before you started tackling that problem, that must be a horrific, daunting indictment on the rest of your life. How did you react? It's interesting to to see that you kind of rebounded and I think almost as strong as ever. But I think a lot of people would have taken that diagnosis and sort of folded. I'm curious to get into your head there. I guess for me, initially when I was diagnosed, I certainly fell into a hole. I didn't know what to do. There wasn't a lot about how to manage my disease back then. I made the mistake of going home after my diagnosis and asking Dr. Google about (laughs) my quality of life and how long I was going to live for. And if you're typing life expectancy for a severe COPD patient, you're going to see something, you know, six to eight, ten years, and that's it. So I did all the wrong things as far as mindset's concerned. And I guess I reached a stage where me and my wife sat down and said, you know, we we can't live like this. We've got to change things. I was only 45 when I was diagnosed. So I still wanted to see my kids grow up. I wanted to see them get married. I wanted to see grandkids, all those sorts of things. So my wife started researching about different strategies we could use. And the first thing we come up with 
was salt therapy. Um, so you go into salt rooms and it's supposed to be good for lung disease. And we tried that, it had no effect on me, so we kept looking. And my wife came across an article about a Chinese medicine doctor in our local area who had had success with um, different diseases. So we thought, oh, well, nothing to lose. We'll go and visit him. And it was interesting because the doctor examined me and he looked me in the eye and he said, I can't do anything about your lungs. He said, but what I can do is I can give you more energy. And I said, well, I'll take that. Because hmm. I knew myself if I could get more energy and get back to exercise. Because at this stage, I wasn't doing anything. I was too sick. And so if I knew I could get the energy to get back in the exercise, I could maybe turn things around. I was a skeptic. I didn't believe in Chinese medicine. So over the course of the next three or four months, so I took his um, pills and his herbs and mixed them up and took them every day religiously. My wife made sure that that happened. And what I did notice is I started to get more energy. Hmm. What kind so, of herbs, what kind of tonics would he, do you remember? Look, I can't remember what it is and he's no longer practicing. So I actually tried to investigate right. that, but I haven't been able to have any luck there. And I don't know whether it was the what he gave me or it was a placebo effect. Right. I don't know. But whatever it was, it worked. I had more energy. I got up, I started walking again and going from short walks to longer walks and building my exercise capacity is, is what I call it. And the more I exercise, the better I felt. So it sort of encouraged me to keep exercising because I could see the benefits of doing that. I had more energy and by exercising, I was getting more energy again. Hmm. So gradually I worked myself out of that negative mindset and it was a process. Um, I went from walking and I decided I wanted to hop back on my bike again and start bike riding and I did that. And that was a slow process, but I gradually built up, you know, my ability to ride bikes over, over longer distances. The big challenge then was I wanted to get back into swimming. So the first time I hopped in the pool and went to swim and I'm swimming freestyle with arms and trying to kick my legs, I got so breathless, I just sunk. <laughs> I can um, imagine. I mean, your breathing is already restricted due to the disease and then more than half the time your face is in the water. I mean, yeah. that, that must be a little bit frightening just from a psychological drowning effect. Oh, look, it was. Um, uh, but I started off in a, in a smaller pool, a 25-metre pool. Yeah. So I, if I was going to drown, I could stand up, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I thought to myself, all right, I need to get back to swimming, so how am I going to do it? So I then bought a device called a pool boy, and it's a flotation device that we put between our legs, and it basically keeps from our hips downward afloat so we don't have to kick. Mm. So all I have to do then is swing my arms. And that was working. So I could get back in the pool using a pool boy and I slowly started to swim again and increase my ability to swim. So I got to the stage where I, I could walk, I wasn't running, I could cycle and I could swim. So because I like to bite off more, more than I can chew and decided that I was now an elite athlete, <laughs> I went to my wife and said, I want to do an Ironman. And she laughed. And she said, I think those days are over. And I said, well, I at least want to have a go at doing an Ironman event. So she said, all right, well, let's go off and see the respiratory doctor and see what he's got to say about that. So we went into his rooms and I said, I want to do an Ironman. And I think after 10 minutes he picked himself up off the ground because he was laughing so hard. Yeah. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, you're not going to finish an Ironman. He said, you've got chronic lung disease. He said, I'm happy for you to train for an Ironman, as long as you abide by the rules I set out 
training wise and that had to do predominantly with my heart rate. So we started training for an Ironman. But this time around, it was very different to the time before. I had some guidelines I had to adhere to and one was keeping my heart rate below 150 beats per minute. Hmm. And the reason why I had to do that is my oxygen levels drop significantly once I get over 150 beats per minute. So it was important that I keep my heart rate as low as I could. Basically below your lactic threshold, lactate acid threshold essentially is probably what range you're targeting. Yeah, exactly. And the other rule was that if at any stage I started to become sick, then I had to pull out the race. Because for a patient, when you have an exacerbation of disease, that's when you really get some damage done to your lungs. Mm. So the whole idea is to minimise exacerbations. So I had a look around about products I could use to boost my immune system. So hopefully I wouldn't get sick and I come across some research about zinc. So from that day until today, I take a zinc powder supplement, which our friend Professor Clark also takes. And it works a treat. I have been able to minimise my exacerbations. I still have them, but not as much as I used to. So I went through Ironman training for, I think it was about eight months, trained for the Port Macquarie Ironman. I remember being there on on the start line of the day of the race and and looking out because I've got to do a 2.4 mile swim. I had no idea whether I was going to be able to do that. In fact, I even know whether whether I'd be rescued or not but I knew I was going to give it a go. In in your training did you never do a 2.4 mile swim? I did but training and race day is very different because when you jump into the water with 2,000 other competitors. Everyone's like tearing at each other I see yeah I see and you know I made the decision early on that I would actually wait until everyone else got in the water and then I would follow in last because the last thing I need to do is having other athletes swim over the top of me. <laughs> uh, I was yeah. having enough t- trouble keeping afloat. Yeah. And, and the beauty with Ironman for me as far as swimming was that you get to wear a wetsuit. And so a wetsuit gives you some flotation, right. which is good. The downside of that is wetsuits are also quite uh, restrictive, which is not something I wanted, but you know, it was a trade-off, flotation right. versus restriction. Right. So I jumped in the water. My wife did the race with me, jumped in the water and off I, off I went. My target was to actually, my first goal was to finish the swim leg. My second goal was to beat my wife in the swim leg. <laughs> I achieved my first goal. I got out of the water after one hour and 31 minutes and completed the swim. I didn't beat my wife out of the water. <laughs> She's a far better swimmer than me. <laughs> And then it was a process. So that part's done. Now it's time to go and get changed into my cycling gear because now I had to do a 112-mile bike ride. And trust me, as someone who's used to breathing through a straw all the time, that is quite daunting. The course at Port Macquarie is one of the hilliest in Ironman events. So hills and people with lung disease don't go well together. Set off on the bike ride, I knew I had to sort of do the ride in around the eight hours, which is a long time to be in a, on a bike. So about 80 mile into uh, the bike ride, um, I was quite fatigued. I wasn't coming last, but I was near last. And we have what they call a sweeper vehicle, and they're a vehicle that come around and pick up all the athletes who don't want to keep going or they're not going to make the cutoff time or whatever. As I'm riding along, the sweeper vehicle pulls up beside me and I look over to this guy and I say, are you going to pull me out of this race? 
And he said to me, are you going to stay at this pace? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, if you stay at this pace, I'm not going to pull you out of the race because you'll make the cutoff point. I said, okay. So I stayed at that pace. And and this is probably the time in my journey that, that really started to make a difference to me. I got into the cycle leg and I handed my bike over to one of the officials and went into the change tent where you get changed into your running gear. I actually sat down on a chair. I put my head in my hands and I cried like a baby because that the, the day had just hit me. You yeah. know, I just 2.4 mile. I just rode 112 miles on a bike. Yeah. And I've got lung disease. Yeah. And I've done all this. But then the thought of going out and now doing a marathon as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, was playing with my head. Yeah. And I started making excuses to myself. I can pull out this race now because. I've done a great job for someone with, you know, 22% lung function. I, right. I can hold my head up. But then it hit me. One thing I said to my family when I was first diagnosed is I said to them, I don't want to be treated like an invalid. I don't want to be treated any differently to anyone else. So here I am, two-thirds of the way through an Ironman event, making excuses for myself, and I'm treating myself like an invalid. And I started to think this is not who I am. And at that moment I looked up. And there was one of the officials was sitting in a chair straight across from me. And in his best Australian accent, he looked at me and says, what are you doing? <laughs> and he says, mate, if you're going to finish this race, you need to get your clothes on and get your butt out of here. You can't be sitting here crying like a baby. And that was it. He was right. I, I stopped making <laughs> excuses. I mean, in Australia, we... We, um, especially in Ironman races, we don't take any prisoners and we don't get any sympathy. You know, you're just like anyone else. You either get out, get out and run, or you get out of the race. I got changed, right? And my mindset was that I was going to get into this race, and the only way I was going to get off the course is someone dragged me off the course. So for the next <laughs> six odd hours, I made my way around Port Macquarie. The cutoff time for uh, an Ironman event is 17 hours. Um, the whole time I'm out there, I'm resigned to the fact that I'm not going to make the cutoff time. I'm too slow. By this stage, I've become incredibly breathless. I was walking most of the time. I couldn't run anymore. I had my wife and uh, kids and my coach following me around the course, encouraging me to keep going. I got to the stage, every lap you, you run past the finishing chute, so you see the time allotted. And I come past it and I had a look and I looked at the time I had left to finish the race and how far I had to go, and I, that, I thought to myself, I, I, can, I can finish this race. And it was the first time all day that I actually felt like, hang on, I might be able to do this. So 16 hours and 50 minutes into the race, I crossed the finishing line with 10 minutes wow. to spare. <laughs> that, to me, was a defining moment in my journey with my disease. And I talk about this when I talk to patient groups and respiratory professionals. It's the 16 hours and 50 minutes that changed my life. Because what I realised is that I didn't have to let my disease define me. I could be whatever I wanted to be. It was all in the mind and it was all about setting myself goals and following these goals through. Yes, I've got COPD. Do I believe it's going to be the disease that, that finishes me? No because I made a decision back then that I'm going to beat the disease. I'm not going to cure it, but I'm not going to let it get me. And from that day on, um, my life changed. I've now done three Ironman events. 
plus marathons, plus all sorts of things. And uh, the more I do, the better I feel. I've still got COPD and I've still got very severe COPD. I have my good days and my bad days. But, you know, mindset is a very powerful thing when you're dealing with, well, lots of things in life, but especially with chronic disease. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, I think I would say most modern humans can't be on their feet for 16 hours, let alone even contemplate doing a half Ironman or even just an Olympic course triathlon. So for different guests on the podcast, I think you have one of the most compelling stories in in the sense that you've just overcome so many challenges and stuck through it. And I think that inspires, I think, just me personally, as someone who doesn't have any you know, disease excuses to like not push yourself in a way, right? Like if you can overcome like real physical limitations and choose not to be invalid and not to be treated as an invalid and just power through, I think that's inspiring. So keep that up. I mean, if there's any way that we can support with that, uh, please let us know. And I think that in some sense, we have started to support you with our ketone ester product. But I think before even talking about the experience with the Boston Marathon, as you were developing your athletic career, it sounds like to me that you also started diving more and more into different management strategies for COPD. Can you also describe the different iterations and evolutions and journeys that you've done around ketosis, different supplements, different routines? Yeah, look, my journey with nutrition started uh, a couple of years ago. And it was funny because the reason why it started is because of the New York Marathon. I ran that in 2015 and my goal was to go under six hours for a New York marathon and people may think, oh, well, that's very slow, but trust me, running like you're breathing through a straw, it's pretty quick. <laughs> and I, I did the marathon in six hours and five minutes and I was okay. so frustrated um, that I wasn't able to get un- under the six hours because I'd trained for like 22 weeks for this marathon. I did everything I possibly could to prepare myself and this was the result and I wasn't happy. So when I got back Mm -hmm. to Australia, I started to think, all right, what strategies can I change? And I knew from my background in triathlons that fueling your body is very important. So I started looking at nutritional aspects. And I guess the first thing I went down was the paleo road, which probably didn't make a lot of difference. It made a little bit of difference to me because my diet wasn't that bad previous and then I started finding some reading studies about low carbohydrate diets and their application to respiratory disease and there's studies going back 30 years but there's studies that are widely ignored these days so I transferred into a low carbohydrate diet so after about six months of doing that diet I did my next marathon which was back here at home and my time was 34 minutes quicker down mm, wow. New York. And I thought, hang on, what's going on here? The only thing I've changed is my nutrition. It was about that time that my respiratory doctor had said to me he'd listened to a podcast, and that podcast was uh, with uh, Dominic D'Agostino and, and Tim Ferriss, and I think a lot of people in this space have, have heard that podcast. I listened to it, and I then decided I was going to try a cryogenic diet, so I moved into space. In the meantime, I was reading up Dom's work with ketone esters and come across Professor Clark's uh, her work with ketone esters as well. After about four months on the ketogenic diet, I'd noticed a range of differences with my disease. I was breathing easier. 
my day-to-day life was better. Um, one of my medications I use, which is a reliever medication, I pretty much stopped using it because, you know, it just made that much of a difference with, with my breathing. Sorry I, to interject here. So to clarify for the audience here, you distinguish a low-carbohydrate diet from a ketogenic diet. What were the differences there and what were your net carbs? All right. Um, if I go back to a low-carbohydrate diet, I was probably doing about 100, and 100 to 120 grams a day. Okay. So we're um, still – okay, So which is – Low in terms of the standard Western diet, but Not pretty exactly. high in terms of yeah. someone who's trying to elevate ketones. Okay. Exactly. So when he's shifted to the ketogenic diet, you were closer to 25 grams net carbs? Oh, less than that. So you're um, trying to go to as close to zero grams as possible. Yeah, I, I would say between 10 and 20 grams of net carbs okay. per day. And I'll get on to the story of what's happened yeah. since, since then. Yeah. But, uh, the, the main thing that interests me with uh, ketogenic diets was a study done in 2015, I think it was, where they showed that ketones could suppress the NLRP3 inflammasome. Yes. Now, that particular inflammasome is a major driver in many diseases, including mine. So it wasn't just suppressing one type of inflammation, it was suppressing the mother load, if you want to call it, of, of inflammation. And most researchers will say that these stats that NLRP3 has a significant role to play in chronic diseases. So my research in that um, got me around to uh, Professor Clark's work with the ketone ester at Oxford University. Just so happens I was going to run the London Marathon, and that was in April 2017. And we'd organised for me to catch up with her while I was over in London because I wanted to pick her brain, so to speak, and she was willing to help me out. And this was really interesting. So I did the London Marathon in nutritional ketosis. So before the race, my um, ketone readings were about 2 millimolar. Okay. Uh, My blood glucose, I think, was about 3.8 millimolar. I ran the London Marathon and ran a PB, uh, 5 hours, 22 minutes. Right. when you think of your New blood York, sugar was quite low. I mean, I'm just doing the math in my head. So 3.8 millimole to the American listeners is yeah. around 70 milligrams of deciliter. Which, I mean, you're quite ketotic at that time. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting, what I've found is my fueling strategies through these races, and I'm not advocating this and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's what I found happens with me is that I don't fuel during a race. So London Marathon, I took a couple of Quest nutrition bars and I had um, uh, hydrolyte tablets that um, I took as well. I didn't need anything through the race and I didn't feel like I need fueling. I didn't have that feeling where you hit the wall, which right. I've experienced many times before. In fact, I did the race and after the race, I met up with the chief operating officer of the British Lung Foundation because I was actually running the race to raise money for them. And he looked at me and said, you don't even look like you've run a marathon. <laughs> and I just felt so good afterwards. Um, in fact, that night we did a very unketogenic thing. Uh, myself, my family and some friends went out and had uh, beer and pizza. <laughs> Great. But that's what made it interesting to my visit to Oxford. Because I was finding it very hard to find the right types of food to eat while I was in London, um, I basically went off the diet. And within three days, my symptoms returned. I'd become quite breathless. I was using my relieving medication a lot more. 
I got to Oxford University and met up with uh, Professor Clark and was sitting there in her office and talking and she said she couldn't believe how breathless I was and that I'd just run a, a, a marathon. We got talking about how uh, the ketone ester may help a respiratory patient and this is all new stuff because you know ketone esters haven't been tried in, in the respiratory world. In fact, I get a lot of pushback in the respiratory world about using a ketogenic diet. Yeah. But that's starting to change. I'm starting to get people more on board with it because there's science that, that support it. So before I left um, Professor Clark's um, office, she said, do you want to sample the raw ketone ester, which I'd heard was very badly tasting. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, she, uh, Professor Clark had made me a cup of tea and she said, well, what you've got to do is, is drink this like a shot and then follow it down with your cup of tea chaser. I said, oh, okay. So I had the ester and it wasn't as bad as what I thought it was going to be. I prepared myself for the worst, so it wasn't that bad. I don't think it's ever that bad. I think people get freaked out, but it's never that bad. <laughs> no, it's saying, oh, it's, you know, jet fuel and blah, 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 blah. blah. But yeah, right. you know, I think I've had worse when I was a teenager going yeah. to nightclubs. But anyhow, I had the ester, said my goodbyes, hopped in the car. Within an hour, my symptoms had gone back to what they were like when I was in ketosis. So my breathlessness was back under control. I was feeling really good. And what the funny thing was what my wife and my uh, my son had said when we were driving back into London is that I wouldn't shut up, that I kept <laughs> on asking questions and doing all these things. And it was like my, my brain was going 100 miles an hour. Yeah. And that is my experience that, you know, they call, whether they call it mental clarity or, or whatever, but you definitely have clarity of mind, which is something which is really good when you're in a race um, because times when you are under stress, you need to be thinking clearly, especially if you're taking on nutrition or hydrating or whatever, you need to know what you're doing. Yeah. And for me, it, it certainly makes a difference. So I got back to um Australia thinking this is great. In the meantime, I, I'd come in contact with uh, Dominic Diagostino and he has a background in pulmonary uh, critical care and we started talking about my disease and how ketones may benefit my disease. I'd shared my experience with him and I'd been able to measure things as far as lung function and obviously blood ketones and blood glucose levels. And I started seeing a correlation between my lung function and my blood glucose and blood ketone levels. So the higher my ketones were and the higher my, the lower my blood, blood glucose was, the higher my lung function was. And that's been the norm since I've been doing this strategy is that when I'm in a state of ketosis, my lung function is significantly better than when it hasn't. So that is how I've got to this stage now. And, and people say to me, oh, when are you going to get off this diet? And I said, well, I, I won't be. This is this suits the way I eat. Do I stay on a ketogenic diet in seven days a week? No. Um, I believe it's important to cycle in, especially um, extra carbs in the form of vegetables. I enjoy a glass of red wine, which no longer kicks me out of ketosis. And that's the other thing I've found along the way is that when you spend so much time in ketosis, your body then comes more, I guess, relaxed to what you can eat. And I find that I can eat more carbohydrates and it not throw me out of ketosis, right. which I think is just an adaptation. You know, we hear people talking about uh, metabolic 
flexibility and be able to burn both fuels. And I, and I, I know that's where I am at the moment. I think you, your muscles are just uptaking glucose and sucking that in really quick. And then you're still keto adapted. So you're still con- you're converting fat into ketones. I mean, I think that does seem to be the experience with people that are essentially keto adapted. Absolutely. I think the interesting thing is that most people think that a ketogenic diet could just be a fad, but I think people fail to realize that it's actually sustainable as a lifestyle. You're basically living ketogenic and then cycling in as an occasion versus the vice versa, right? Like I think most people think of, oh, I'll eat ketogenic for a meal or something that doesn't even make any, make any sense, but it's very much like flipping the script against standard Western diet. It is without a doubt. And you know, for me, I incorporate other strategies um, uh, like intermittent fasting as well. Yeah. What happened to me last year is after the marathon, I went on a, a holiday and we did a river cruise through Europe on the second week of the cruise. The whole ship got the flu, basically, and I got quite sick to the point where I was concerned that I actually uh, was not going to wake up one morning. My um, disease, I'd had a massive exacerbation. I couldn't breathe. I was stuck in my room, I was on oxygen, and I just had to let the um, medication take effect. That resulted in me having um, four months off work because I I got so sick. Wow. I was in a cycle of using antibiotics and uh, steroids in the form of prednisone to try and open up my airways to get rid of the um, infection, and it wasn't working. I was just keep going through that cycle. At that time, I papers from Dr. Walter Longo about the effects of a long fast and the regeneration of your immune system. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this and see if it makes any difference to me. So I did a, a five-day fast, water and bone broth, and after the fast I didn't have any antibiotics or any steroids. And in fact, three weeks after the fast I went back to work. Now, I'm not going to sit here and advocate that patients should do that. I did it and I believe it it changed something inside of me and it you know, resulted in me getting better. I can't speak about the mechanisms of how that may work because I'm not a scientist. That was my experience. So from pretty early on, I've basically used a, a time-restricted feeding. So 16-8 is pretty much my protocol. One day a week I'll fast for 24 hours. But I just find eating like that and when I'm in a fasted state, my breathing is a lot better. And obviously in that state, my ketone levels are a lot higher. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think all these trends around intermittent fasting, extended fasting, ketogenic diet, and now exogenous ketones like a, a ketone ester, I think just all implicate that the ketone body, beta-hydroxybutyrate is such an important signaling molecule. You know, I think one exciting aspect is the NRLP3 inflammasome path, really mitigating inflammation. I think that has interesting applications, not only for lung disease, but neurological conditions, uh, recover, you know, just general muscle recovery, which is pretty exciting. You know, my sense as we know, we're in this space is that you just attack this endpoint with all the different strategies. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. You have your time restricted feeding, you know, strategy, then you eat fairly keto on a regular basis and then you supplement here and there with exogenous ketones and that will maintain a fairly high ketotic range for you like basically throughout you know your entire day yeah look definitely um as you know i use the (laughs) ester in the boston marathon yeah and i mean the day didn't go according to plan because of the the weather conditions but it was 
I was able to do some testing the day before. And what was interesting is when I woke up, I didn't take my normal medication. I took the ester. Yeah. And then I measured my lung function over the course of about three hours. And what I found is as my ketone levels went up, my lung function improved as well. Like linearly, um, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Well, what percent to what percent? Look, not a lot about, well, when I say not a lot, about 18% improvement um, in my lung function, which I wasn't expecting to tell you the truth um, because I thought it would take longer and right. more dose to, to see a rise like right. that. But what was interesting was the as my ketone levels rise and got up to a peak of 4.2 millimole, my blood glucose come down. Yes. And for respiratory patients, that's beneficial in two ways. Yeah, I think our blood glucose having spikes in that drives a lot of inflammation in our body. But the ketones have the ability to suppress it as well. So I did that the day before. Um, the day of the marathon, I took uh, the ester dose um, about half an hour before the start of the race. And I do feel, although I couldn't measure anything on the day because of the weather, which was disappointing, I could feel my airways opening up. And I guess it's a hard thing to describe, but to noticeably feel like you're breathing easier is, is quite amazing when you're not taking medication to do right. it. Now, I'm not, I'm not for one minute suggesting that patients should stop taking medication, and I certainly won't. But what I think I'm finding is that either the ester enhances the medication or the medication enhances the ester, I'm not sure. But when I measure my lung function using both the ester and medication, that's when the magic happens. You know, mm. That's when I see a significant increase in my lung function. Now, What's well, the percentage there? My best is about 48% increase improvements. Wow. That's massive. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you could say to any respiratory patient that, hey, through diet or through supplementation, we can potentially give you an increase in that in your lung function, well, they're going to jump at it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Why wouldn't you? So I didn't set any records the day of the Boston Marathon, but it wasn't a day about setting records. I mean, for a respiratory patient whose triggers are rain, cold weather, wind and smoke, you know, we had rain that was sideways. It was torrential. We had 30-mile-per-hour wind. Uh, we had a bit of snow at the start line. And then because it was so so cold, is a lot of the houses were burning timber for, for their heating. So that smoke was affecting my lungs as well. So I had all these things to contend with, plus I, I knew I had, to, had to keep dry. So I was wearing four layers of clothing. So if you imagine trying to run with four layers of clothing, it's pretty difficult. So my strategy to start the race was just to finish the race. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I did that. And I will say I, I hope no one ever has to run the Boston Marathon in those conditions again because everyone I spoke to said it was just appalling and it was. I can imagine. I mean, four layers of clothes, they're probably sopping wet. I mean, you're carrying extra... 10 pounds of just water there. Uh, congratulations on finishing. I mean, I remember in the office, we knew that you were going to test human ketone, the, the ester in the race, and we're, we're looking at the weather reports. And we're like, ooh, we hope that Russell's going to be okay because it looked terrible out there in terms of the weather, but glad you were able to power through that. But about the lung capacity function, I mean, is that new science? Has anyone studied that in the clinic? No, it's... Um 
unfortunately with respiratory disease, we don't we miss out on funding. And to give you an example of how much we miss out, in 2015, 150,000 people died of COPD in the United States, third leading cause of death. On the NIH funding, we were 150th. So we received no funding. So studies Why? for this sort of Why? It's a stigma associated with, with the disease, has a lot to do with it. And an example of that is something that I and other patients get when someone asks us, you know, what's your disease? We say, you know, it's COPD and they go, oh, that's the smoker's disease. You deserve it. Okay. And that's the mentality. You deserve the disease. But my answer to them is, okay, if you're a type 2 diabetic, do you deserve it because you've eaten the wrong sort of food in the entire life? That's a, that's a, good, that's a good comparison. And, and the fact is... Anyone who says they haven't made a poor lifestyle choice, well, they're lying because we all do it. Some of us dodge a bullet and some of us don't. Yeah. I make no excuses that um, I did the wrong thing. I was a smoker back when I started smoking, but, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of information about it. We knew that it probably wasn't the greatest thing in the world. But nowadays, you know, there's a lot of information about smoking, about diet and what's good for you and what, what's not still probably doesn't make it any easier for people right. to avoid the pitfalls of what makes you eat bad foods or what makes you smoke cigarettes. You know, a lot of that can come down to stresses in your life yeah. and different environments. So to turn around and say to someone you deserve your disease is wrong, but we get it. And the problem is it affects the amount of funding we get. You know, for our disease, we haven't seen a, an actual change in our medications as far as the type of medications in 20 years. We see different ways of delivering medication, but no new advances in medication. And I've spoken to a number of researchers who are so frustrated with this, but they say, you know, our hands are tied because there's only so much money to go around that we can actually do research. That's a shame. It is, but for me, this is part of my journey, is that if I can show people strategies that I use that work, then, then maybe other people have tried, and I know from the experience and the feedback I get from people via Facebook and via my website, you know, patients have tried and are doing this strategy and they're noticing the difference in their quality of life. So to me, managing type 2 diabetes has become this huge push because the evidence is there. You can reverse it through diet. COPD, we can't reverse it, but what we can do is improve our quality of life. You can manage it. You can manage it, yeah. And that's what all we want as patients, you know. We just want to have an improved quality of life. And this is a way forward, then then well and good. I do have researchers who are interested in studying what I'm doing, and hopefully next time I'm back in the US, we're actually going to line up some some studies and some tests in a a lab so we can measure what's happening with me in a controlled environment. Yeah, I mean, you would would expect that if you can acutely change lung function, lung capacity, and directly correlate it to ketone levels, that seems to be an important result. That's an interesting phenomenon of human physiology that should be, you know, published and incited, right? I mean, it's just, it's like lung capacity is so fundamental to life, and we have a, a direct lever on that. I mean, for the researchers out there who want to have a peer-reviewed published paper that, like, we have Russ here basically serving as N equals one, proving, you know, some sort of signal here. I mean, it seems like an easy paper to, and an easy research project to run and publish. Look, I do too. And as you know, I have my own podcast series and yeah. uh, 
I had Dr. Stephen Finney on there um, last year. Now, yeah. he's actually used a ketogenic diet to treat respiratory patients when he was practicing in a hospital environment. Mm. And this was many years ago. And he said to me, he has no understanding of why doctors aren't using this strategy because he was able to show how it worked. He was able to get patients who are on respirators off respirators. Now, generally, when patients are on, on respirators, it's, it's a downhill slide. Yeah. But he was able to get patients off respirators. Now, surely that must sort of ignite some sort of thought in researchers and in doctors. All right, what we're doing is not working. Here's a strategy that not only is Russell Winwood doing and it's working for him, but other doctors have tried. There's, there's studies supporting this sort of practice. So why aren't we doing it? Right. I mean, I think that's a broader question. Maybe we can touch upon that here. It just seems to be in the current medical establishment, there is a bias towards pharmaceutical interventions. It seems like nutritional interventions like a ketogenic diet or fasting are more dismissed. They, they seem less robust, but it seems like obviously in your specific case and published in, it sounds like in clinical research over the last, you know, but, but you know, forgotten research 20, 30 years ago, that these nutritional interventions work just as, if not better, than some of the you know pharmaceutical pharmaceutical alternatives. I mean, is this a cultural problem? Is this an incentives problem because doctors don't get paid, insurance companies don't pay for nutrition, they only pay for drugs? What do you see from your perspective as a patient is wrong with the system? I think that there's a few things wrong, and don't get me wrong, I am a staunch advocate of taking your medication as a as a risk group. Yeah. However, in saying that, I did a podcast with one of the leading respiratory researchers in the world. It has been for the last 20 years. And he said his fear is that a certain medication that is prescribed for COPD patients, which is a corticosteroid, is not actually any good for COPD patients. It's good for asthma patients. Mm. And he said the problem is is that pharmaceuticals see the the money in, in promoting these sort of medications. And just recently, I've, I've come across another pharmaceutical company who are launching a brand new medication that has this corticosteroid in it that has been proven not to work for COPD patients. In asthma patients and patients who have asthma and COPD, yes, it has some benefits. So for me, what's happening at the moment is that pharmaceuticals are dictating treatment, not doctors. And I think that's a big mistake. I know in our own uh, respiratory world here in Australia, you know, patients don't have a very loud voice. You know, I've been to a, a number of respiratory conferences where you don't hear from patients. All you hear is from researchers. And, you know, sadly, a lot of these researchers, their only source of funding is from pharmaceutical companies. So I wonder whether their direction is, is painted for them before they even start. I've talked to people who have other diseases and go to um, the conferences and they hear from patients, you know, what patients want, um, their experiences and that sort of thing. And that's that's meaningful information. In my recent visit to the States, I talked to a couple of companies who invited me there to talk about patients' needs for devices because they're not in touch with patients. So they're actively seeking patients' inputs into improving devices. And I think there needs to be a change or a shift in how pharmaceutical companies pursue research and there needs to be more patient involvement with what the patient needs. You know, science is good and we should always follow the science, 
but listening to patients and patient experiences is just as important. So there's a lot of work to be done in the respiratory world and there's a lot of work to be done in, I think, realigning priorities with pharmaceutical companies, researchers and physicians. So we're all going in the same direction. Absolutely. I think that you put it really well there. So as we wrap up here, what's next for you? I know that we're sending you, you know, a special shipment of ketone esters to Australia. But what's next? I mean, you know, are there big events, big Ironmans, big marathons that you have planned for this year? Any other COPD advocate event programs that you're working on? What can we shout out here? Okay, so event-wise, in eight weeks' time, I'm doing our home marathon, which is the Gold Coast Marathon. And hopefully we're going to have lovely fine weather and I'm going to be powered by the human ecosystem. <laughs> Nice. And hopefully we'll get some nice, um, some data, some good data from that, that that can show what I'm talking about. Moving forward, I've got six marathons around the world I want to complete. So three are done now. So New, uh, New York, London and Boston. I've still got Tokyo, Chicago and Berlin to go. In 2020, we're actually looking at doing Race Across America. So the cycle race, team of eight, I'll be the first patient ever to do the race and I'll have to use oxygen to get myself through the race as well. So it's a whole new learning experience for me as far as riding 3,000 miles on a bike and using oxygen. So we're starting to sort of organise that now. As far as patient work, I do a lot of advocacy work. Uh, one thing that um, I've just started in in the last four or five months is working for an organisation and we're rolling out a wellness program. And the wellness program pretty much mimics how I live my life. It's through diet and actually the, the nutritional plan in the wellness program has been designed by Dominic D'Agostino. He's had quite a bit of an input into this. And I would say to respiratory patients who are interested in following my plan, this plan is actually has the help of dietitians, there's support, there is a cost of course, but I think from my point of view and my experience, it's well worth it. The company who I'm working with is called the Lung Health Institute. So as I say, they're rolling out a wellness program that is specifically designed for COPD patients. If a patient is interested in that, they just have to Google Lung Health Institute and they'll find all the information that they need. I wouldn't advocate this if I didn't believe in it. I don't advocate anything I, I don't strongly believe in. And over the last two years, I've, I've seen what a difference nutritional strategies can make and to me I'm now getting to what you might call the cutting edge and and what is the perfect plan for a COPD patient you know I look at the the product you guys are putting out there and think to myself you know obviously over time it's going to become less inhibited as far as price yeah it's concerned and you know if we could get to a stage where a COPD patient could take two or three doses of of that ester a day, I think that's going to make a huge difference to their quality of life in conjunction, you know, with their medication and still having a healthy diet, limiting their carbohydrate intake. Um, all these things are what I call extra tools that patients can have in their toolbox and, and they're useful strategies and they work. Russell, you're an inspiration. Thanks so much for taking the time. Look, it's been my pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah. I know a lot of you guys have been writing in at podcast.human.com for different questions or topics or subjects that you'd like myself and our research lead, Dr. Brianna Subs, to cover. 
So let's actually make a Q&A special episode to answer any and all of your questions relating to our own personal performance protocols, our research and backgrounds as biohackers and scientists and business people to, you know, what's going on at Human? You know, what products are we working on? What R&D are we working on? What customers? What are the feedback from the keto nester? Happy to address any and all questions. So shoot us an email at podcast@human.com, and we'll once we have a big bank of questions, we'll do a special episode. As always, please subscribe for future episodes of the Human Enhancement Podcast. Give us a five-star review on iTunes and send a screenshot to podcast@human.com and we'll send you a free Sprint Mini, our acute focus nootropic. Thanks so much and see you next time.